Wasn't that fantastic? A lot of you. That's lucky. Got something to look forward to. A lot of you were baptized right here as well. And many of us raised our hands and said, we were going to participate in teaching you about Jesus. So that's what's going to happen right now. Let's pray before you guys go out. Lord God, thank you so much for these children. Thank you for their developing minds. Thank you for their parents who care enough about them to bring them here and to uh, send them with teachers who love them and want to teach them the scriptures and about who you are. I pray that they would be open to hearing that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. That was wonderful to have you back up here and wonderful to have the whole family. I don't know if you noticed during the singing, they've learned how to clap since you've been gone. It was very full, very impressed. You know how to clap. Come on. It was full on this morning. Uh, my name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor, if I haven't met you yet. And this morning, we're working from, we have, uh, this is the second sermon in the book of Titus. So you can get out your sermon outline. You see my introduction. I've used the word countercultural. What do you think of when you hear the phrase countercultural? Well, I certainly have images of protests, of maybe a marching on Washington or occupying Wall Street. Um, I don't know if that's what comes to mind for you, but since the 1960s, there has been a countercultural movement in our country that has been about testing the limits of the law, of protesting the status quo, pushing the envelope with bold and radical behavior that purposely uh, shocks conventional safe society. Phrases like, don't trust anyone over 30 and stand up to the man uh, really rally people against what they thought were threats to their freedom, their individuality, and, and countering the, the culture not only involved challenging government authority, which can have healthy and unhealthy elements, but also experimenting. We saw a lot of experimenting with mind-altering drugs and testing the bounds of sexual freedom. But now that that lifestyle, that mindset has been lived and really celebrated for 50 years... And Madison Avenue and Hollywood have embraced it very thoroughly. Can we still call it countercultural? I'm not trying to have an all-out rant here uh, about our culture, but to point out that the needle has moved so far 
in what our society tolerates, that maybe standing out in our culture looks a lot different, and we define countercultural different. And today's passage shows us behavior that is countercultural. I appreciate Frank's prayer even hinting at that. And in a society that has embraced all kinds of domestic arrangements, all manner of sexual morality that celebrates those who challenge authority and argue against anyone imposing their view on others. Well, we're going to read Paul's words to his protege, Titus. And there we see his reminder that church leaders are to teach their church members to act in a way that is dignified, restrained, good, and godly. It's teaching that was vital then and is still vital today. And I would say that it is against the grain of our culture, just as it was in the first century Greco-Roman world. So let's read through that. Titus chapter 2, first 10 verses. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father God, use this text to teach us, to remind us what it looks like in each one of our lives to have our lives accord, to follow, to Uh, match the sound doctrine that we have been taught and that we embrace. Give us insight. Help us not to recoil at what may seem very lofty standards. Maybe we're far from it, or maybe we're prideful because we think we've found it. But Lord, speak to our hearts. Open our minds and our hearts to hear what you would have to say to us through these verses. In Jesus' name, amen. In case you missed Tom's sermon last week and some of the background of the book of Titus, remember that Titus was written by the Apostle Paul 
to his church planting and traveling companion, Titus. Titus was helping organize this church in Crete, which is an island in the Mediterranean, southeast of Greece. And we've seen Titus throughout the New Testament. He's uh, the man that Paul sends on special assignments sometimes. He goes and picks up the collection in Jerusalem, or he delivers uh, letters to the Corinthians. Um, He's even the guy that we find out in Galatians that Paul held up to the Judaizers and said, Titus is a Gentile, and he is not he has not been circumcised, and I'm not going to circumcise him. He sort of used him as an example, um, as a test case, as it were. So they are true partners in ministry, but they're separated now. And as Tom preached about last week, Titus was the one whom Paul trusted to appoint elders in the church at Crete. And we, so we heard what the qualifications, criteria for eldership were. And so now we shift somewhat this week, chapter 2, where the focus is on everyone else, the members of the church. Um, But it's still framed by the advice that Paul is giving to church leaders. And so verses 1 and then as you pull out verses 7 and 8, which when first time you read through them, you might have thought those were addressed to the young men. It's really addressed to the leaders and to Titus. And so it's to remind us that those in positions of spiritual authority must teach sound doctrine and, and model good works. Teaching and modeling. Let's look at those three verses. Verse 1, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then skip to 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Well, Paul starts by saying that Titus needs to teach the people how to act in a way that naturally flows from what they believe. This passage continues the link that was established in the last chapter, and it continues throughout the book, and really throughout all of Paul's teachings, that our beliefs affect our actions. Doctrine affects doing. Worldview affects living. For example, you cannot hear and absorb the truth that God is sovereign and holy and then just walk away as if you've just heard a mathematical equation explained. The focus of Paul's ministry is to say that needs to change how you live. You have to ask yourself, how does my life reflect God's holiness then? How does God's sovereignty comfort me and drive me to worship, shape my worship, change how I live. Every part of doctrine must change us. And so Paul tells Timothy in verse 1, essentially, after people hear and accept your teaching of sound doctrine, then you've got to give them some answers to their natural questions of 
How then should we live? And I've already said Christian leaders need to do more than just teach. Verse 7 particularly reminds us that they're to be living examples for God's people. People need more than just the examples in Scripture or the stories and biographies of saints from earlier ages. We need people who are living out the Christian life well now. Teaching an example, the verbal and the visual, always form a powerful combination. And people inside and outside the church are always looking for a way to point out the hypocrisy of those who teach godly things. And we certainly have plenty of examples that we could list of pastors, church leaders, who didn't quite live up to what they were teaching. And Paul says, don't give them an easy target. Opponents should be put to shame even trying to convict you of something, of condemning you. Don't give them anything evil to say about you. This exhortation to Titus and the the church leaders is, of course, a contrast with the group from Crete that Paul had warned about in the last chapter. Do you remember? He said they were insubordinate. They didn't trust authority. They were empty talkers, greedy. And he ends with the phrase, they're detestable and disobedient, unfit for any good work. A pretty harsh assessment. And so by contrast, the church of Jesus should be led by men of integrity, dignity, and sound speech. And so this frames, then, the rest of the passage that the leaders teach and model. And now, here's what I want you to tell each group. And uh, in verses 2 through 6, Paul pulls out four groups of people within the church, split up by gender, by age. Let's look at those verses 2 through 6 and see what he has to say about their appropriate behavior and their roles. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So a big emphasis in this section that I hear is that the older generations have a responsibility to influence and walk alongside the younger generation to encourage them to live godly, productive lives. Now this is going to take 
both sides, right? The, the older generation needs to be willing to take the time, sacrifice some time and energy to contribute. They need to work past some differences and they can't just throw up their hands in disgust and I don't understand young people these days. We were at the villages where my parents live, a retirement community, and you kind of get the feeling they've, uh, some of them throw up their hands, these crazy kids these days. You've got to work past that. You need to get over the awkwardness of befriending people who are different than you, who grew up differently. And younger believers need to be humble enough to admit that they don't have it all figured out. They need guidance. And there's a lot they can learn from the older generations, from those who have already struggled in their lives, in their faith. If you've heard of the joy groups in our church, uh, they're based on this very passage. They were started by Mary Cook as a way for the older, more mature believers, the women, to mentor, disciple the younger women and exhort them. And, and from what I've heard, they've been, they've been going well for several years. Um, if, if that's new to you and that's exciting to you, talk to C.C. Paul May. And uh, you can maybe get in on that at some point. And we have some informal mentoring among the men in our church. And we'd love to see more. Uh, Dean Luckenbaugh has offered himself as if he's not doing enough. Uh, thanks for the Thanksgiving dinner you're putting together. But he has a real passion to see older men disciple and mentor younger men since he had a great experience himself with that. And you might maybe be thinking, well, isn't that what families, parents are for? And Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Parents are huge influences on us, and that's their primary role. But as a man in our church once told me, sometimes my kids just need someone who doesn't have the same last name as them to tell them to the same things I've been saying to them, and then finally they'll listen. And I see the truth in that. I mean, my parents were huge influences on me. My dad was, certainly. But I look back and see that in my teen years, my youth pastor, Dan, had a huge impact on me. And I, I think I uh, followed through on a lot of spiritual commitments because I knew Dan wanted me to, not because my dad wanted me to. Young, and, young men and young women in the church benefit hugely from older believers who will pour into their lives. Now, I'm not sure exactly what Paul means with younger and older. I define younger as younger than me and older as older than me. I'm 41, and that seems about right. So, I don't just mean teenagers here. 20s, 30s, maybe 40s are younger. Believers in the faith I'm midlife. Christ is going to happen any minute now. As we look closer, I was, sorry, off script. As we look closer 
at the characteristics of each group that Paul singles out. Did you notice there's one trait that keeps coming back? Self-control. He spells it out for three of the groups, and I think it's strongly implied when he speaks of the older women not drinking and gossiping too much. That's, there's some self-control. Um, and maybe, maybe you need to underline it there. It's implied. It's, it's, it's throughout. And, and that phrase, Paul is saying that any adult Christian should be able to control themselves or work towards that. Control their bodies. Control their emotions. And not let anger or lust or greed or gluttony or any other passion or emotion overpower us so that we act out and choose damaging sins. Proverbs 16.32, I think it's in your outline there, says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Like that. Now self-control is probably never going to be the most exciting thing to work on. It's probably not what you're going to list in your Christmas letter. You know, John got a promotion this year, and Janie was part of the student council, and Junior uh, plays five sports, and I worked on self-control. I don't see that in a lot of Christmas letters. But maturing Christians show that Jesus is Lord over them by restraining their sinful impulses. James tells us, us, tame your tongue. Resist the urges of the flesh. And in so doing, you treat others better than yourselves. There was a report on the TV show 2020 that I read about. It was a few years ago. And they talked about an experiment that had been done actually decades ago on four-year-olds. And they put them in a classroom. And essentially what happened is they said, okay, if you can wait 10 minutes for your teacher to come back, you're going to get five pieces of candy. But if you can't wait that long, you're only going to get two pieces of candy. And a certain number of kids could wait. A certain number of kids couldn't. Um, But what's interesting is then they tracked those kids through the years, actually through the decades. And the, the report on 2020 was the findings that the, even at that young age, those kids that could control themselves did much better in all areas of life, morally, socially, academically, everything. And one of the doctors who had, success, had conducted the experiment concluded this, if we're concerned about raising children to be successful and healthy and happy, forget about self-esteem, concentrate on self-control. That's a secular doctor echoing Paul for us. Now let's talk about each of these groups and what, what Paul recommends. Verse 2, Gives us a a pretty daunting picture, maybe, of what older men should look and act like. But as I was thinking about this, I mean, is there 
anything more unappealing than an older man who still acts like he's young and cool and desirable. I mean, I watch Steven Tyler of Aerosmith on American Idol, and he's sort of that picture for me of this guy in his 60s, whatever he is. Try he th- I think he thinks he's still 25 years old and just the picture of cool. And I don't know, maybe we give our rock stars a, a pass, but Paul is reminding us here that we meet, need men who advance in age to also advance in maturity, to embrace dignity and steadfastness. If our fathers and grandfathers in the faith can't show us what it's like to grow more godly and faithful as we grow older, it can be discouraging for those of us who are younger and finding life and faith very difficult. Look at those words used of the older men in verse 2. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. As we heard last week, many of those are qualifications of an elder, right? But of all men in the church in general. And every book about men that I've read says that men desire respect. And those characteristics that Paul lists will earn them respect. Next, Paul addresses the older women. And I think the picture here is those who are not raising children and perhaps not working and and have choices about how they can spend their time. And so I, I think Paul paints two contrasting pictures. He's saying either the older women can sit around drinking and becoming addicted to their wine, which lends itself to gossip and irreverence, or they can find constructive things to do. Things like helping younger women navigate life. And it's obvious that Paul as with any Christian leader, would like to let those women know, we need you. What a waste to have free time that you spend on trifling activities that don't benefit anyone. Please find ways to use your gifts. Bless others. Pour yourself out for the next generation. Consider loving the younger women in the church enough to mentor and guide them. I've sat in meetings where the younger women in our church have expressed a strong desire to have older women in their Bible studies because they need wisdom and perspective. I think the quote was something along the lines of, just tell us that these exhausting, frustrating times will pass. So moving to them in verse 4 and 5. Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Uh, People hear this. um, 
maybe immediately assume that Paul is forbidding women from working. I think if that was the case, Paul would have said, forbid the young women from working outside the home. Um, and I, I think the fact is that there were not many jobs for women outside the home in that culture, and it's so, somewhat assumed that they'll be home. John Stott, great pastor commentator, said, what is affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, she will love and not neglect them. What he is opposing is not necessarily a wife's pursuit of a profession, but the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. I think it's, the, the, it's their conduct at home that is the issue. Is a woman loving and kind to her family, a wonderful helpmate to her husband, and a, a godly mother raising children who carry on the faith? When unbelievers watch her conduct, are they impressed with her godliness and commitment to her family? Or are they disappointed that she is self-centered and unloving? I think that's what Paul's getting at. And I want to encourage both women who work outside the home, because many of you do that out of necessity and, and you balance very difficult time demands. And I want to encourage those who stay home full-time. And Paul uses the phrase, working at home, and that's exactly what it is. And blessings are you, and you can do that in a spirit that is loving, self-controlled, pure, kind, and submissive. Because what does Paul say that those things will result in? Verse 5 says, the word of God is not reviled. In other words, people can't say, make a charge against Christianity from your actions. We're going to talk more about that in the conclusion. And then verse 6, the final group here. Paul only has one thing for the young men in verse 6. Be self-controlled. Maybe he thought that's all the young men could handle. <laughs> don't, don't think too hard about being dignified or holy. Just try as hard as you can to control yourselves. That's possible. Or maybe everything that's already been written should be internalized by the young men. And he didn't want to repeat himself, but self-control is maybe the most important of those. We do know that Paul has said in other places, specifically to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. So I don't think Paul's necessarily setting the bar really low for young men. It's pretty high when you take the full counsel of Scripture. And young men with energy and a passion to accomplish great things for the kingdom, they are true gifts for the church and for any ministry. So I encourage you, young men, be self-controlled. And then find ministry. 
Find ways to follow the Lord and use your gifts as we encourage with all groups. Now, I sometimes or often come away from teachings like these hoping that they do not discourage you. Because none of us fits these criteria perfectly, right? And some of us flat out just fail in some of these areas. And I don't want you to think that there is no room for you in this church or any church if you're not looking exactly like what Paul is is holding up here. These are ideals, something to strive towards, to be commended towards. But if you are an alcoholic or a drug addict, you are welcome in church. If you are addicted to gambling or pornography, you are still welcome. If you lose control of your temper, you're welcome. The church is not a showcase for perfect saints, but a place for imperfect people to find grace and healing and answers. So don't despair. But dare to take up the challenge of of making your life reflect the beauty of God's grace that's been given to you. The final group that Paul addresses, sometimes called bond servants, but slaves, in verses 9 and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not show, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now Paul has given words for, for free people. But what about those who are not free? Do they still need to obey the Lord? There were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire, possibly a third of the inhabitants of Rome, and, and praise God that many of them had found faith in Christ. And praise God that the Christian faith is not reserved for the wealthy and the upper class, the privileged. Right? If anything, Christianity favors the poor and the abused. And Paul has condemned those who enslave others in 1 Timothy 1.10. So there's no recommendation of slavery here, but here he wants servants and slaves, just like everyone else, to live in such a way that people see God's love in them. Even if they're not free outwardly, they have been freed inwardly. So they're to glorify God in obeying, in refraining from arguing or or stealing or any other little thing that they could get away with. And I really think we can easily translate the advice given here to slaves and servants to our own work and our workplaces a verse that's often quoted in Colossians 3, 23 and 24 to encourage us in our workplaces is whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Well, that phrase is also written to slaves. 
but it's just as applicable to anyone who has a job. Work as though Jesus is your boss, and you are looking to please him with your work. Don't get too down when people criticize you if you know that you have done what was asked of you. And don't get puffed up with pride when people praise you. Work hard with integrity and conviction and the assurance that God has designed you for work, for subduing the earth in whatever profession, whatever task you've been called to. Uh, Hugh Welchel, who was our men's retreat speaker this year, reminds us in his book, How Then Should We Work?, that all of our work, even the most mundane things we do, are taken by God and transformed into kingdom work. Honor God. So ten verses addressing three different groups, church leaders and church members, both slave and free, and all the groups within there. But all of these instructions from Paul come because there is something very large at stake. Underlying all of this teaching is the idea that the world is watching us and is trying to figure out from our behavior and from our relationships and our attitudes whether this Christianity is worth anything or if it's just a big waste of time, whether it's the truth or a hoax, a lie. So three times in this passage, Paul makes a statement that reminds us that our behavior affects how outsiders see our God and our Bible. I don't know if you caught them as we talked through them. Verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So it's like this little formula that Paul keeps coming back to and gets repeated. Act well so that people cannot speak and think poorly of God, His people, and His Word. Paul wasn't just telling Christians to act right because he was concerned about manners. He wasn't running a cotillion club where everybody uses the right fork and society is very proper and civilized. There's such a stronger motivation, a realization that an unbelieving world could come to trust the ways of Jesus much better if his followers lived it out and had strong families, strong marriages, healthy relationships throughout the church. There's an old saying you've probably heard, your life might be the only Bible some people read. And that seems to be what Paul is saying. The behavior of Christians should make the whole message of the gospel as beautiful and attractive to unbelievers as possible. It should be easier to believe what we say about Christ and salvation because 
Our lives beautifully recommend our words. 1 Peter 2.12 sums it up. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Jesus Christ gave up his life for you, for me. He endured the pain and humiliation of the cross so that our sins would not be counted against us. You are his redeemed, his beloved. And while you did nothing to earn his love and you cannot lose your standing in his family, the Lord still exhorts you to godly living, to become more like Jesus, to show that you understand your salvation so deeply that it transforms you into someone whose life glorifies God. Let's take a moment to silently pray, and then I'll close us in prayer.